Good to see you this morning, and uh, not a bad crowd considering we got 25 of our teens and adults away at snow camp this morning. Uh, they're having a, a good time, no doubt, um, despite the fact that there is no snow. So, uh, and I think that's why they spell it S N O instead of S N O W, because you know most of the time they don't get the snow. So, but I'm sure they're having a great time here this morning. Um, I'd like to uh, open up this. The, the sermon time here this morning by um, drawing your attention to, to something. Um, and I'd like to begin by reading a little bit from Psalm uh, 31. Uh, it's a Psalm of David where um, he is entrusting himself to the Lord. And I'm just going to read a few of the verses that are in this uh, particular chapter. There are 24 verses, but um, he writes... In you, O Lord, I do take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me and a strong fortress to save me. Then in verse 21, he goes on to say, Blessed be the Lord. For he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. And I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. That particular um, psalm is especially meaningful um, as we think about the events that are unfolding in the Ukraine this morning and over the last several days. Um, The people there are not the first ones to understand the difficulties of being in a besieged city. And yet, rather than um, despairing, um, they are looking heavenward. The reports coming out of Ukraine are nothing short of amazing, uh, not just in their defense of their country and their city and just how they've been able to so far stymie the, the Russian advances, Um, But uh, as they see uh, the people caring for one another and the church in Ukraine taking the lead in that regard, it has been reported that pastor after pastor um, deciding to stay with their people and to do whatever it is that they can to minister hope and healing in Jesus' name. Uh, I've read some amazing stories of, of self-sacrifice, of, of people coming to the Lord through this difficult situation. And I read an article um, just the other day near the beginning of this conflict, and I'd like to share just a little bit of it with you. Um, the gentleman who's, who's speaking a lot of this is Ant- um, um, uh, Anatoly Reichnitz, who serves as the Deputy General Secretary of the Ukrainian Bible Society, uh, as well as a few other people here. But um, he, he says that church leaders all throughout the Ukraine, but especially you know in Kiev, are working together for peace across denominational lines. They're working together, and people are seeking hope in the Scriptures, so much so um, that we're told that um, they've run out of Bibles, that they, had, they flooded um, the uh, Bible society there in Kiev, and there are no more Bibles, and they're pleading for Bibles because people want them. And um, according to... Uh, Anatoly, he says, priests and pastors over the past weeks have been flocking to the store to buy Bibles. They've run out of copies. And so he says, we need more. So I don't know if you have access to the Bible Society here in America or whatever, but they need Bibles. And we can help them get those Bibles. 
There's a, another pastor that's there, um, and I'm going to butcher his name, but uh, Vyacheslav Kamrov. This is what he's asking for. He says, I ask you, in the name of Jesus Christ, whoever can pray, please keep us in your prayers. The war has started in our land. We ask everyone who is able to pray, please pray for us. Pray for Ukraine. Pray that lives are spared as well as our bodies and souls. And the solidarity amongst pastors there is incredible. And it's not just in Ukraine. Apparently, these pastors are in contact with other pastors in Russia. And they are all united together. And it's causing a groundswell that I'm not, I'm not sure we've seen in our lifetime anyway. But even in Russia, you know, over 3,000 protesters have been arrested and imprisoned. So how many thousands of people are out in the streets in Russia? Out in the streets in Paris and in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and all over, all over the world in solidarity. And this is what... Um, Karamov said, he says, that we speak to our colleagues in Russia. We church leaders speak to one another. We pray together. We are united in the Lord. This is exactly the gospel message that we should be magnifying to a hurting world. God's word can reconcile enemies, drive out despair, and heal our suffering hearts. This is the vision of the United Church we see shining in Ukraine. Amid war, politics, division, the Church of Jesus Christ is still spreading the gospel and building the kingdom. And that's what the church is supposed to be about. It's building God's kingdom. And so I'd like to pray, and I'd like to pray uh, specifically for the people of Ukraine and for the church there, even as we begin to look at God's word here this morning. So would you join me? Father God, we do come before you this morning uh, with heavy hearts. And uh, Lord, we pray for the people of Ukraine. We pray for all those who are suffering for those families who have lost loved ones uh, in this war, for those that are huddled in bomb shelters and subways and churches trying to stay out of the fray, and for those who are defending their homeland. Lord, especially we lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ that are there that are seeking to stand in the gap to not only to pray for resolution and for peace, but to do whatever they can to help those who are suffering. Lord, may this be one of the finest moments of your church in this country and in the world. And as we uh, pray for um, the church there and for the people of Ukraine, Lord, I pray that you would do a deep work in our heart as well. Lord, as you give them courage and boldness to stand firm in the faith, to share the gospel with those who need to hear, with those who are living in fear right now, that, Lord, that they would know that there is a hope, for there is a God in heaven who cares, who 2,000 years ago sent his one and only son to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might have true peace. Lord God, I pray that you would bless our time as we look at your word this morning that you would use it to encourage us and inspire us to be on mission with you. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, throughout history, the church has come to the aid of those um, who have suffered and oftentimes suffered needlessly. But it's also during times of suffering that the church has really thrived. Um, we find that persecution, though meant uh, to squelch what God is doing, only serves to add fuel to the fire. And we see that happening in Ukraine. But I think that as much as it's, I'm encouraged as I hear those reports coming out of that country, I, I'm a little saddened by the fact that here in our country, 
we seem to lack the fervor. We seem to uh, not be doing as well as some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world that are facing persecution, that are facing hardship or tyranny. You know, in the United States, although there are pockets, there are churches that are doing well, and I think New Life is one of those churches that's doing well. We can be doing better. But by and large, in our country, we're not doing a great job of making disciples. In fact, we're not really doing a great job of winning people to Jesus. I mean, consider the following statistics, that of over 350,000 churches in this country, less than 1% are growing by conversion growth. Most of the churches in this country are very small. You have a handful of these megachurches and other churches that might not be considered megachurches, but large churches nonetheless. And what they're saying is that the growth is not coming from people who are praying to receive Jesus. People are getting saved. The growth is coming because they're taking sheep from other churches. They're getting either growth coming in from other churches, people leaving one church, going to another church, or by having lots of babies. I'm not sure which is the case, but uh, nonetheless, less than 1% growing by conversion growth. 80% of all Christians in this country um, do not consistently witness for Christ. They don't regularly share their faith with people outside of their Christian circles. And only 7% have had any evangelistic training. And less than 5% have ever led anyone to Christ. Now, I'm not sure where you are in all of that. I I don't say that to shame anyone. I'm I'm simply saying those are the, the facts here in the United States. And so it, it makes, makes you wonder, why is that the case? Now, I realize that making disciples is much more than evangelism, but uh, evangelism is where disciple-making begins. You, you come to faith in Christ, and you begin the journey of being a disciple of Jesus, and then you make other disciples yourself. I think, unfortunately, a lot of us tend to talk about Jesus, but we tend to talk about Jesus amongst people who talk about Jesus. We don't often find ourselves talking with people who don't know Jesus and talk to them about him, to have spiritual conversations with them. And, and again, you would ask the question, well, why is that? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons. Let me just give you three. One of which is, I think, that um, we have a problem of unbelief in the church. I think there are a lot of unbelieving believers that sit in services like this each week. We go through the motions of worshiping God, but if the truth was told, we don't believe a lot of the stuff that the church says they believe. More and more evangelical Christians no longer believe in hell, that hell is a real place. Or if you do, that it is not a place of eternal conscious torment, but it's temporary. That once you go there, you're there for a while, and then you're let out. More and more evangelical Christians no longer believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. They believe there are lots of ways to God. So you can understand that when when our belief structure starts to crumble, when we no longer believe what the Bible teaches, we no longer have incentive for sharing our faith with people. I mean, why would you bother to risk confrontation with somebody, to risk ridicule, if people aren't really going to go to hell anyway? If people can go to heaven any way they choose, through any means that they choose. Another reason, perhaps, that people don't share their faith is a lack of love. Now, Jesus makes it very clear. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what fills your heart? What do you find yourself talking about constantly, all the time? Ohio State Buckeye football, the latest Marvel movie, video game. See, we speak from the heart. 
and what fills our heart, what has captured our affections, that's what's going to come out. And so perhaps it's possible that we do not love God as much as we say that we do. It's also possible that we may not love others the way that we, we think that we do. We don't have God's heart for the lost. We don't love others enough to tell them that unless they repent and believe the gospel, that they will spend an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. I think a little bit later in the service, we're going to come back to that, and you're going to to see it, I think, uh, illustrated in, um, in a video that I want to show you. And then the last reason that I'll give you is I think sometimes we, we don't witness to non-believers because um, it's just easier not to. We, we take the path of least resistance. You know, we're, we're creatures of comfort. And to engage in spiritual conversations uh, with people who don't know Jesus uh, can disturb our comfort. And it can disturb their comfort. And it's probably because it disturbs their comfort that it disturbs our comfort, so therefore we don't end up sharing it. None of us want to be ridiculed or persecuted for our faith. None of us want to lose family members or friends, so we just tow the line. We maintain the status quo. We don't want to rock the boat. But folks, if we really, really believe this book, And if we really, really love our family members and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers, then how can we not tell them the gospel, the good news? Now, some of you may object by saying, but, you know, Paul, I I witness by my life. My life is a a witness. And And I say to you, good, but it's not good enough. Yes, we're to do good works, but we're also to use words, good words, God's words. He commands us to speak his words. And the truth is, doing good works is a lot easier than speaking his words. I mean, when you think about it, right, you're not usually persecuted for caring for the poor, the widows, or the orphans. We're not ridiculed or maligned for feeding the hungry or caring for the sick or the homeless. Those things are acceptable. But it's talking about people's sin and their need for a savior that rocks the boat. We've got to get over that. We've got to get over that fear and that discomfort. And we've got to love people enough to tell them the truth of the gospel. Now, in John chapter 4, I think God gives us uh, some principles that will help us get over the hump. Um, that will help us be more effective in our witness for Christ. Uh, If you remember back in the early part of John chapter 3, Jesus had an encounter with a man named Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus at night. He's a religious leader, a Pharisee. He's also a member of the Sanhedrin. And he comes to Jesus, and and Jesus has this interaction with him and tells him that unless he is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Well, in John chapter 4, Jesus has a similar discussion or encounter, this time with an immoral Samaritan woman in the middle of the day in the country of Samaria. And this woman, being a social outcast, is on the completely other end of the spectrum from Nicodemus. And there's a lesson for us to be learned in this story. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to John chapter 4. And as you do that, I just want you to know that in telling us these two stories... What Jesus is doing is that he is illustrating for us that you are never so good so as to not need a savior. And you are never so bad to be excluded from salvation. So in our text this morning, Jesus not only fleshes out the truth of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, whether you be a Jew 
or a Samaritan, whether you be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, whether you be the religious type or a hardcore sinner. Jesus loves the world and he models for us how to engage in spiritual conversations uh, for those who are in need of salvation. So this morning, if you want something to hang your hat on, it's simply this, to lead people to Jesus we must evangelize like Jesus. To lead people to Jesus, we must learn to evangelize like Jesus. So, verse 1. You have to advance the slide. My clicker's not working. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making disciples, more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples... He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sukkar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. I'll uh, put a map up on the screen just so you can kind of see the general area where Jacob's well is up here in Samaria. And this would have been the path that Jesus uh, would have taken. There were actually three paths uh, if you were in Judah to get to Samaria, uh, get to Galilee, which would have been above Samaria. You could take the shortest, shortest route right through the center of the country. You could take a coastal route or you could travel up on um, the west side or east side of the Jordan River to get there. So um, with that being said, I'd like to show you this picture too. This is a picture of uh, the area where Jesus is actually having the conversation with the woman at the well. That's the town of Sukkar. Uh, it's an older picture. It's an old postcard that I scanned in. Uh, and that's Mount Gerizim uh, there in the background. So that gives you an idea of the topography where this um, encounter occurs. So let's keep reading verse 7. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews." 
But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Can you imagine how she must have felt upon hearing those words? Jesus has been leading her step by step to this end, to this conclusion, that she would recognize who it is that she is speaking with. Now, the first thing that I see in this text uh, about evangelizing like Jesus uh, is that we need to be intentional. We need to be intentional. Um, now, in order to understand where I'm going with this, you have to understand something of, of the disdain that the Jews had for the Samaritans and the Samaritans had for the Jews. It was uh, sometime after, I believe, 931 uh, B.C., when the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, if you remember, the, the, the kingdom of Israel had been divided into uh, uh, two kingdoms, the, the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom, um, the tribe of Judah. So you had Judah and you had Israel. And, um, and it was after Solomon's death that um, Israel really started to go off the deep end. And eventually, the Assyrians came in, took them captive, just destroyed us, the, the, the city of Samaria, took the people off into uh, captivity, and left a remnant of people there, and then brought in other peoples from other parts of the world that they had conquered to settle in this very same area. And so Israel became known as Samaria. And because these other people were brought in with their religious practices, the faith of the Israelites that lived uh, in Samaria now uh, became syncretistic. There were elements of Judaism and elements of other religions being mixed together, so much so that the Jews uh, in Judah had, had, well, to say they had disdain for them would be an understatement. They hated them. They despised them. And those routes that I mentioned to you, oftentimes, if you had to travel from Judah uh, up to Galilee, um, you would prefer either the coastal route or the route um, to the uh, east of the country, rather than go right through the middle of the country, even though it was quicker to do so. So when we're told that Jesus had to go through Samaria, I think it's a clue that Jesus has an ulterior motive in mind. Because many Jews would not have gone through Samaria, and the disciples certainly probably were asking themselves, Lord, why do we have to go through Samaria? Why, do we, why can't we just go around that? And I think it's because Jesus knew he had work to do in Samaria, and he had some lessons to teach his disciples while they are there. And I think, although, as Peter tells us in, in his epistle, that we should always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that we have within us. We should always be prepared to share the gospel with people. I think we should also be intentional about doing it. I think that's the thing that often is, is lacking, is the intentionality. We need to plan to share the gospel. I don't think we plan to share the gospel unless there's some evangelistic event or something that's happening. Um, if you know you're going to be around people who, who don't know Jesus, who need to know Jesus, then we ought to plan to share Jesus with them. How how to engage a spiritual conversation with somebody. And there are plenty of opportunities in life for this. Birthday parties, anniversaries, holidays. And we will find ourselves in circumstances, you know, when we are with people who need to know Jesus. But if we don't give the forethought to it, if we aren't intentional about it, those opportunities may come and go. And we never seize the moment. 
my wife and I are getting ready to um, uh, take a trip this year uh, to the Grand Canyon. Um, it's a place we've never been. Um, I don't want to say it's on my bucket list because I don't plan on kicking the bucket anytime soon. Um, but it is a place we'd like to go. And, and I realize that uh, if I don't plan out that trip in advance, it will not go well. Because uh, we plan on driving. Um, and so, you know, you, there's a lot to think about driving out there, right? Uh, I need to time out our trip, make sure I got, we got enough vacation time, you know, wherever to do this. Uh, we need to figure out the routes we will take. Is there construction anywhere? Are there roads that are, you know, um, uh, you know, that we can't travel on? How much will it cost? Where will we stay? Uh, what exactly will we do while they're there? Because there's a lot of things, obviously, you can do. Um, and, oh, and then we're going to be visiting some of my relatives, some of which will be coming from another state and will be meeting up in Texas. And so I have to coordinate not only our schedule, uh, but their schedules as well. So, and I realize, I know we could get in the car and just go, right? We could do that. I, I, we do spontaneous stuff like that. But, you, but on a long trip, something like that, when you're spending a lot of money, you don't want to be too spontaneous. So... Um, um, when, I, when I think about then sharing our faith or witnessing to people and the need to be intentional, I think we need to bring that same mindset of planning into it uh, as we do when we're getting ready to take a trip. So when you decide to engage somebody in a spiritual conversation, it's a good idea to plan for it in advance. You say, well, well how do you do that? Well, there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, let me mention just a few. First, you can start with prayer. Pray. Ask, ask God give you opportunities. And where you know you have opportunities, ask, pray, ask God for courage. Ask him for boldness. Ask him to take the veil away of the person that you want to speak to so that they might understand the gospel. Um, read your Bibles. That's a good plan. Memorize key scripture. Uh, in our D group right now, uh, we're, we're memorizing, we're using NavPress's topical memory system, and uh, we're now memorizing a chunk of verses under Proclaim Christ. They're key verses that you will come to time and time again when it comes to sharing your faith. Verses like Romans 3.23 and 6.23 and Ephesians 2.8 and 9 and, you know, 1 John, or excuse me, John 1.12 and 13. Whole bunch of, of these verses, but we're learning to memorize them so that we can use them. That's a part of the planning process. Uh, read a book on evangelism. Buy a pocket Bible and other helpful literature that you can give away. Write out your testimony if you've never done that before. Work on making the gospel clear so that when the occasion comes, you're ready. Make a plan. Don't leave it to chance. Here are some other questions to think about. Who do you want to talk to? When will you talk to them? What are some ways you can springboard into sharing your testimony or the gospel with them? What resources will you bring? And how will you plan to follow up? So evangelizing like Jesus uh, requires that we be intentional, but it also requires that we be uh, missional. Verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sukkar near the field that Jacob had given to his son. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour or noontime. We need to remember that we serve a missionary God. We serve a God who came from heaven to earth. Jesus went about preaching the gospel in every town, going to where people were so that they could hear the gospel. Jesus did not sit around someplace and just wait for people to come to him, although sometimes they did. And here in John chapter 4, we see that Jesus meets a woman at a local watering hole. But Jesus had to leave 
Judea, he had to go through Samaria and go to the specific spot where this woman would be. And similarly, I think we can't afford to sit and wait for people to come to us. I've said this before, but you know, people aren't exactly beating down our doors to get in here this morning. We have to go to them, even to people who we may not have um, an affinity for, people who may be different from us, as different as the Samaritans were to the Jews. Being missional then means we live and we work as missionaries in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, and in our cities. So let me ask you, where are your missional watering holes? Where do you go to rub shoulders with people who don't know Jesus? And if you say, I don't know, well, let me suggest a few. I know there are a few golfers here. How about the golf course? How about the swimming pool? How about the park or the playground or the Y or a ball field? or when there are community events, or block parties. There's all sorts of places. Now, I've, I will confess to you, this has been the, the most difficult thing for me as a pastor, because I am surrounded by Christians and professing Christians all the time. I envy my wife because she works in a secular workplace. She is surrounded by non-Christians. So, you know, you talk about letting your light shine. All she has to do is show up and she glows. And people can see that. And the conversations that she has with people, I I get jealous. I have to work hard to find ways to rub shoulders with people who don't know Jesus because I'm surrounded by you guys all the time. Now, for those of you that work in in the marketplace, just because you work in the marketplace doesn't mean you necessarily are sharing Christ, but at least you've got an opportunity because there are lots of people around you that need to know him. So leading people to Jesus requires that we be missional, but it also requires uh, for us to be conversational. In verse 7, we read that a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Give me a drink. Now, this is Jesus, and he's going to Samaria because he has a divine appointment to give some spiritual truth to an immoral Samaritan woman, and he starts the conversation off with, give me a drink. Not a very spiritual conversation starter, would you agree? But yet Jesus uses a common need to lead into an uncommon conversation. And Jesus was a master at this. He was tremendously, I mean, he was God, I know, but, but I mean, he was so good at being able to take things like uh, water or bread or wine or coins or fish or rocks or wind or even the temple to bring about a spiritual conversation and to communicate scriptural truths. Um, We're not Jesus. It doesn't come as easy to us. But there are things that we can do that would put us in a better position to be able to do that. Let me give you a few tips. Um, One would be listen to people's stories. Listen to their stories. Listen for their background, their history, their needs, their hopes, their hurts, their struggles, and their fears. Once you can identify those things, you might have an opportunity to be able to speak into one of those areas. Perhaps it's a struggle that you yourself have had. Look for commonalities, whether it be family, work, Sports, hobbies, other uh, pertinent interests, dreams, and goals. It's, it's amazing. I just talked with a gentleman uh, this morning who said that, yeah, there's a, a co-worker, whatever, who's, um, in, and this is, he, he's in Alabama. Some of you guys know Dean Bruckner. He's down in Alabama, but somehow or another, this guy is um, big on Joe Burrow. 
And so um, Dean's planning on going back and kind of using Joe Burrow as kind of a springboard to talking about spiritual truths. I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. Love to see how that one goes. Um, Direct the conversation from the peripheral to the essential. You don't want to be, you know, talking football the whole time. You need to somehow be able to move that from the peripheral to the essential. So Jesus always moved the conversation from earthly things to heavenly things or to spiritual things. And he does so here in chapter 4. He starts out talking about water and he brings it to talking about living water. Talks about living water and, 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 and where to worship, to who to worship. Ultimately, he directs the conversation to himself because he wants her to understand who it is that she is talking to. So if we want to evangelize like Jesus, we must be conversational. And we must initiate conversation sometimes, which is also hard for some of us. But another thing that we need to be is respectful in our conversation. Verse 9 says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, there are four things, at least, that make this story so amazing. First is that the Jews hated the Samaritans. So, Nothing else, the woman has a right to say, how is it that you are asking me? I'm a Samaritan. You're, you're talking to me. You, you're not supposed to be doing that. You, in fact, your people don't do that. So what's going on here? And it was unusual for a woman to visit the well alone during this hour of the day anyway, because most likely they would come either in the early morning hours or around sunset with the other women to draw water. So this tells you a lot about this woman, that she was a social outcast. And for her, the time to go was at noon. And Jewish men avoided speaking with women in public, including their own wives. That was the culture of the day. And if you were a Jewish rabbi, you would never speak to a woman in a public place. And that's why in verse 27, which we'll cover next week, the disciples were amazed that Jesus was talking to a woman. But contrary to cultural standards, Jesus demonstrated great love and concern and respect for this woman that he engaged her in conversation. So the application for us there is real simple. There is no room in the church for snooty saints. There's no room for racism, for prejudice. There's no room for us to hold our you know, head up and our noses back and you know, uh, coming across with an air of superiority being pharisaical. There's no room for that in the church because we are all sinners in need of God's grace. And Jesus comes to us all and we must all come to him on his terms. We should treat others with dignity and respect, even with those people whom we disagree That's what Jesus does here. He doesn't come with the baseball bat approach. He tells her what she needs to hear, but he does so in a respectful, loving way. And the truth is, you will never have success in witnessing to other people if you're always looking down your nose at them. So be aware of that. If you want to evangelize Jesus, you must be respectful, but you must also be confrontational. Um, I left my baseball bat at home. I was going to put it here and use it as a prop so that when I mention be confrontational, I come out with the bat. But that is not what I mean by being confrontational. I don't mean that you are to be hostile, that you are to be belligerent. Rather, I mean we cannot shy away from confronting people with the truths of Scripture. Um, Notice that Jesus didn't shy away from it either. 
He confronted this woman in her sin. Look at verse 16. It says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband. You've had five husbands and your living boyfriend now is not your husband either. What you've said is true. So in telling her to call her husband, Jesus forces her to face her sin. See, see we want to we bury it. We want to minimize it. We, we, we don't want to draw attention to it. We want to kind of hope it doesn't really factor into God's equation, that God grades on the curve, that my good works will outweigh my bad works. But Jesus goes straight for the jugular vein. He goes right to the heart of the message. You know, and, and really, in, with today's modern approach to evangelism, you know, Jesus could be accused of not being very seeker-sensitive. I mean, he's, he's going about this all wrong. He's going to lose her because he's talking about her sin. Jesus, you don't want to do that. You want to win this person, so you need to come in with all the good stuff, the positive stuff, all the wonderful reasons why she should want to follow you. You lead off with pointing out her sin. She's going to go the other way. Well, Jesus never worried about being seeker-friendly or spiritually um, correct. Rather, Jesus lovingly exposes her sin and need for a Savior. And then she does exactly what most people do today. She changes the subject. She wants to get off of this topic because it's uncomfortable. It's pointing out things in her she doesn't like about herself. So she tries to change the subject, shift the conversation to something a little less personal. And you know, today people do the same sort of thing. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but I'm talking with people, and when I start talking about their need for a Savior, that they're a sinner, Scripture says all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, and you know, hey, you know, uh, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Yeah, well, what about all the people, all the people in Africa? What about the heathen in Africa? What about them? And, I, and I'll respond oftentimes, you know what? God is, God is just. He'll deal with the people in Africa. Right now, we're talking about you. See, people want to deflect the conversation. Jesus would have none, none of it. And so she says, sir, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. Yeah, you know, pretty good deduction, but he's so much more than a prophet. So she launches into this, well, your people said we ought to worship in Jerusalem. Our people said we ought to worship here in Mount Gerizim, you know, and all this stuff. And Jesus, Jesus answers her, basically says, where you worship is not the issue. The issue is your heart. It's not where you worship, it's who you worship. So the woman in verse 25 says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, and he who is called Christ, he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And again, I I just, for a moment, if I could put myself in her shoes, what she must have felt at that moment Everything, everything had been building up to this revelation. Jesus was leading her step by step. But before he could reveal to her who he was, he had to reveal to her who she was. She had to see her need for the Messiah. So, so when she says, you know, that I know the Messiah will come, and Jesus says, I'm, I am he, the one who speaks to you, I am he. He's not just saying the Messiah has come, but he's saying your Messiah has come. Her Messiah, her deliverer. 
Jesus moved her along to, to this realization, and how he does so is masterful. He starts out with, give me a drink, a cup of water. It leads to, to talk about living water, and then her desire for this living water. And then Jesus says, okay, I'll give you that living water. First, go call your husband. Oh, can't do that. Yeah, this is why. This is the problem. Uh, well, yeah, I know all of this other stuff, but this, and then Jesus takes it a little bit further down the road. And then finally, she says, I know that one day the Messiah is going to show up and he's going to tell us everything we need to know. So, you know, that's end of story. No, it's not. Because Jesus now says, I'm the, I'm the Messiah. How do you respond to that? How is she going to respond? I love this. You know, Jesus said salvation is from the Jews. It's because God chose the nation of Israel to be his vessel from which the Messiah would come and through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's the sense in which salvation is from the Jews. Whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, a Samaritan, John 3.16 is about you. You're part of the world. And in speaking to this woman, what we learn is that it doesn't matter what color, what race, what creed, what background, what your history is, you too can become a child of God. So on this last point, I just want to remind you that if we're to evangelize like Jesus, we can't shy away from having tough conversations by sharing the truth of the gospel with other people. Love for God and love for other people requires that we confront people with the truth of the gospel and their need for Christ, even if it feels scary and even if it feels socially awkward. And let's face it, sometimes it does. Now, a few years ago, I believe, um, I showed a video um, uh, when we were in our old building um, that I, I thought was very apropos for today's message. So I'm, I'm going to show it again. But it features a gentleman by the name of Penn Gillette. Anybody know who he is? Um, he's a part of, yeah, we've got, we've got a young man in the back that knows who he is. He was a, he's an American illusionist. He's an author. Um, he uh, is a musician. And uh, he's known for his work with a fellow magician named Teller. And so maybe you're familiar with the team Penn and Teller. And so I want you to see this video. This is a selfie video that he took of himself, and he relates a story about an encounter he had with a man after one of his concerts. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we... Uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the, um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff, no reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane, I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye did all of this and uh, it was really wonderful I believe he knew that I was an atheist 
But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. This is more important than that. That line that he says there, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them? That's piercing. And I know that, um, and I will, you know, confess, um, I am nowhere near where I want to be in my walk with the Lord. Um, my love for him, my love for other people is nowhere where it needs to be. Um, but this is a, a prayer that I'm praying that God will do a deep work in me, that he would give me a greater love for him, for other people, um, that I would have the boldness, the courage um, to speak when he gives me those opportunities to speak, that I will be prepared to do so. Um, if we really believe that sin separates us from God, and that hell is real, and that Jesus is the only way to the Father, then the most loving thing that we can do is to proselytize. It's to witness. It's to preach the gospel. You see, to lead people to Jesus, we need to evangelize like Jesus. Like the man in our story here that Penn was talking about, we need to be intentional. We need to be missional. We need to be conversational and respectful and even confrontational. Making disciples is much more than just evangelism, but that's where it starts. And if we falter there, we'll never have an opportunity to make disciples. I, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want us to be one of those churches um, that, that, that we're just content to come in here on Sunday mornings, do our little worship gig, leave, and then nothing ever changes. Nothing. Ever, I, I want us to be an army. I want us to be on mission with God so that there might be many more lovers of Jesus sitting in these seats, that we wouldn't have any empty seats because people have heard that there's hope in Jesus. And they've heard that through us. And if you doubt that God can use you to that end, I want to challenge you this week to go ahead and read verses 27 through 42 on your own and then come back next week as we look at the conclusion of our story. As we continue to pray for um, the people of Ukraine and the church in Ukraine, let's also continue to pray for ourselves and for the church here in America that we too would have a growing hunger for God's word and that we would have a passion to proclaim the gospel to those who need to hear it. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, I thank you for our time together this morning for your word to us, and Lord, just the, the incredible love that you have, that you, you entertain a conversation with a religious leader who thought he was fine, and an immoral woman who didn't know she had a problem, and Lord, you pretty much um, summed us all up. And uh, Father, I pray
that um, you would reveal to us our sin and that we would be quick to repent of it. If there's anyone here that hasn't yet committed their life to you, that Lord, even before they leave here this morning, that they would um, pray and invite you um, to come into their life, to forgive them of their sins, to give them a new start and cause them to be born again. And Father, for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would use us to further your kingdom, that, that Lord, that we would do all that we can do um, so that we might be instruments that you can use to lead others um, to you. And Father, I want to lift up the church and Ukraine, and I pray for our brothers and sisters uh, there, that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them, that you would use them in caring for one another and for the, the people of that country. Lord, that you would protect them from the evil one, and they would continue to look to you for their salvation. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.